The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. It's Tuesday, you're watching Scorebox Europe with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. The extradition bill is dead. Hong Kong's Carrie Lam declares her government's plans to push through the controversial legislation a total failure following months of civil unrest. Deutsche Bank begins to cut 18,000 global jobs in a 7.4 billion euro overhaul. But shares close sharply lower after the CFO warns of significant uncertainty over breaking even in 2020. Apple weighs on Wall Street after a broker downgrades the iPhone maker to sell, saying it expects fundamental deterioration in sales growth. And President Trump attacks Britain's ambassador to Washington and Prime Minister Theresa May over a leaked memo which describes his administration as, quote, inept and dysfunctional. Investors questioning at this point just what the interest rate curve is going to look like and real question marks thrown up after we saw a very strong jobs report on Friday. Investors, as they, they wrapped up shop on the Friday session, selling stocks. That continued into the Monday. You could see uh, the likes of the Dow, four-tenths down in S&P, also trading weaker, and the Nasdaq down eight-tenths of a percent. So it has been a weaker course of trade as investors have just pulled the major indices away from some of the highs that we've got. Uh, when it comes to the Dow, for instance, from its records, off about 0.6 of a percent. So we're still around this peak territory, but it is a pause for thought. Will we get a rate hike from the Fed? And some of the assumptions still expect a 25 basis point cut. However, not the 50 basis point. That seems to be removed from many market expectations now because of the firm jobs numbers. Another big feature in markets yesterday that impacted the tech sector was around Apple. Now, Apple shares fell more than 2% after an analyst from Rosenblatt Securities downgraded the stock to sell from neutral. And that's quite significant when you talk about a stock that has been widely loved by many investors, very positive calls on this stock for, for many, many years. To actually have a sell slapped on this stock is quite significant. So the company, uh, the analyst is talking about Apple facing fundamental deterioration over the next six to 12 months. So it gave a time frame. All this around the iPhone sales and uh, some fears that it will disappoint. Meantime, where else is there a pipeline for Apple stock, Apple products? There doesn't seem much else to, to mitigate effect, uh, the effect of the iPhone. So Apple stock retreating 2% and such a big heavyweight uh, impacting the markets. When it comes to other big themes, it's around interest rates still. And you can see this impacting the yield market. 2.03 is what we've got on the 10-year, marching lower there across the board is what we've seen for many global yields. And investors are closely eyeing testimony this week from Jay Powell. That could be another big mover for these yields on the U.S. market. I want to take you to Asia. This is how we are trading across the board. There was a little weakness in the Chinese markets yesterday. Today, we are trading again in the red, down a little bit less than the two-plus percentage point levels that were coming off the Shanghai Composite and Shenzhen in trade. Now, we are down six-tenths 
of a percent. Australia trades are slightly below the flat line. The Hong Kong market, we just heard in the headlines about the extradition bill being dead after weeks of protests. The Hong Kong market, though, also falling with other global markets, 200 plus points, eight tenths of a percent to the downside. A slight uptick for Japanese stocks. The opening calls this morning here in Europe as we get set up for the trading session. We look soggy as well, picking up on that global theme. Investors uh, look to take stock of some of the major European plays as we open up for trade later on today. Steve. Yeah, funny old market, isn't it? I mean, the materials lagging. Worst day since May. Worst day since May. And consumer discretionaries, which, of course, has got Amazon in there, closing at a fresh record close. And just to add to that, I just had a look at the 52-week range on Apple as well. I mean, it's a hell of a range. 233 is the high, which is obviously significantly higher than we are now. And then 142 the low, which was pretty much exactly a year ago. That's turning into a very volatile stock now. It's been a pivotal one, I think. If you look at some of, course, of the big yeah. movers on the market, Facebook has been one of them around many the big question marks from privacy but apple has also been one too in terms of investors getting back on board the iphone story services but i mean you've been one person writing about this how many analysts have been so favorable around apple stock for many many years so to see someone break ranks and point out well what's coming from iphone if you think about it from a consumer's perspective you're buying an iphone where's the 5g technology that other companies have brought to into the mix what are we doing with iphones at the moment treading water until you get the, the newest devices coming Apple is an amazing franchise with an amazing amount of profit and amazing amount of buyback on the back of that as well. We mustn't forget that buyback. It's very bold of any analyst to go on the negative side as well. But, but the thing that really, I'm just getting back to what I said last autumn. When you take information away from people who have got used to that information, i.e. you're not telling people about how many units you're selling anymore of the hardware and you try and direct everyone to your SaaS growth, your software mm. as a service, then people are going to start raising questions and hence uh, it, it's inevitable. You're going to get more volatility if you give people less information. You, you, you take the data away because it seems to be less relevant because you're saying, well, look at services. However, well, analysts in the market still, still look at the revenues. iPhone sales. Right. Yeah. It's still a very huge contributor. Um, fabulous. Right. We've got lots to talk about on the uh, markets front. So much going on. We'll do that a little bit later on. We've got some great guests for you, actually. But uh, some big stories we need to tick off as well, including Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam has announced that her government's controversial extradition bill is, quote, dead and a total failure. The move comes after their legislation faced mass protests across the territory. Sherry, um, you and interpret this situation better than almost anyone I know. So what does that mean when she says it's dead? Does that mean it's going to be taken away from the legislature? legislature? Uh, and the other couple of points is James Wong's been talking about this chap, Rupert Dover, as well, who's the chief superintendent. He's a, he's a Brit, but he's in charge of uh, the police at a, time, a couple of the very important moments in demonstrations as well. Still a huge amount of pressure on Mrs Lamb and still a lot of pressure on, on the forces in Hong Kong as well. certainly looks that way, Steve. Uh, that's the way I read it, because she really wanted to push for this bill. She had to suspend it because of all these protests. And then she's now declaring the bill dead. So it's quite a bit of retreat, I would say. And it is a step forward on her part, because she really wants to address this issue to get Hong Kong out of this political and perhaps potential economic impasse. Let's first listen to what she had to say this morning. The cause of all these um, uh, grievances and confrontations is an exercise to amend the Fugitive Offenders Ordinance. I have almost immediately put a stop to the amendment exercise. But there are still lingering doubts about the government's sincerity 
or worries whether the government will restart the process in the Legislative Council. So I reiterate here, there is no such plan. The bill is dead. So the word dead is the strongest language, of course, coming from her government and herself to describe where this controversial extradition bill is. But we did hear something very similar for the past two weeks or so. In fact, right after the Legislative Council breaking the violence uh, that we saw on the July 1st handover anniversary, she said the bill will die its natural death. So not too much of a difference there. And she didn't really bring herself to say the R word, the retraction of the bill, or the W word, withdrawal of the bill. And I think that's the reason why we're looking at Hong Kong protesters who've been doing weeks-long protests here in Hong Kong. The Civil Human Rights Front, uh, this is really the organizer of massive weekend rallies in Hong Kong. They're saying that they're not happy with what uh, we had to hear this morning, and they are calling for more rallies. I think that was her attempt to really heal the rift and really get to this political, uh, get Hong Kong out of the political impasse and hopefully move it forward. But it certainly doesn't look like that she's not really giving in to any of the demands fully. And uh, it goes to show how the Hong Kong protesters are not really uh, forgiving her at the moment, even after she declared the bill dead. Guys? Um, After this bill dies or doesn't, or whatever happens with this bill, what's the next point of attack for the protests? Because I just get the impression that the extradition bill is the current lightning rod, but there are going to be other key issues which are going to keep coming back to the fore, Sherry. Exactly. I love that question because the narrative, the change in the narrative as we're watching this developing story in Hong Kong has been very interesting. Yes, it did start with the extradition bill, and that is one of the core demands made by the Hong Kong protesters. They want the Hong Kong government and Carrie Lam to say the R word, retract the bill. But remember, there are other demands. They want her to step down because they are so unhappy with her and also the way that she handled this whole extradition bill, as well as the controversy, how there are so many deeply rooted issues in Hong Kong. I think this is was just another chance for us to really make that exposure. And in fact, this is really the point that uh, uh, Carrie Lam herself uh, tried to address uh, this morning in the press conference, saying that she understands that there are so many uh, deeply rooted issues, the social problems, and she wants to listen better to the Hong Kong public, especially the younger generation. But I think, yes, perhaps the debt, the bill is dead. But there are some questions about what happens after this current legislative term ends, which is summer next year. And what happens after her term is, you know, this Beijing backed new chief executive of Hong Kong going to bring it back. And what happens to all these unhappy sentiments out there in Hong Kong, especially the younger generation who are growing very much anti-Beijing at the moment. Guys? Yeah, it's it's a very thorny issue still, but thank you very much indeed once again, Sherry, for your coverage. Sherry Kang in um, Hong Kong for us. Let's return to the big corporate story, Deutsche Bank. Now thousands of Deutsche Bank employees are awaiting their fate or have already been sent home. Reuters reports whole teams in Asia 
and bankers in New York, meantime, were informed of the layoffs in the cafeteria. Shares in Germany's biggest bank closed down more than 5% despite initial gains. Investors are concerned the lender may not be able to reach its targets as quickly as it would like. Annette is in Frankfurt and she's been covering this story for us. Annette, the scenes yesterday, the imagery were reminiscent of the financial crisis on Wall Street where we saw employees packing up their desks and leaving with boxes just talk us through where we now stand on this Deutsche Bank transformation or reset as it's been called. Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, those pictures are reminiscent of um, what happened when Lehman crashed. Um, and to be fair, the, the layoff in its sheer size, the biggest layoff since Lehman Brothers failed. So it's a huge uh, layoff and it's a huge restructuring. Um, in terms of what it means for Deutsche, I think Deutsche is sincerely going back to its roots. It's the end of their global ambition, full stop. And that's what uh, Zeving and also the CFO and the media call made pretty clear. It's just the end of any gambling. It's the end of global ambitions. And it's the reorientation towards their roots to cater to German corporates um, everywhere in the world. But they don't need to do equities everywhere in the world. So uh, essentially, but the big question mark is, though, whether, for example, asset managers want to have German, uh, the German lender Deutsche Bank as their, their uh, yeah, first bank or their first contact because they want to trade also fixed income products with the same bank as they do equities. So that's the big question mark, whether the strategy is going to work going forward. And clearly the market has taken it uh, not very well, at least in the second half of the day. And that's uh, because they are concentrating uh, once again on execution risk. Deutsche Bank has a very poor track record to actually execute their strategies. And um, many, many strategies have come and gone without any material changes on the bank. So uh, the question is whether this very ambitious strategy, even though they call it conservative, is going to work. Because clearly, if you look at the, uh, at the fine print, the plan is to raise revenue at the same time when they're cutting costs. And that's, this is like, I think, the crucial issue here, because how can you raise revenue in a, in a very difficult environment if you at the same time are cutting your assets? So. Having said that, to be fair to that management team, there was no alternative than to have a board restructuring, and that's what also everybody is saying. But this time they have to get it right. Christian Zeving itself, he is a veteran of Deutsche Bank, and his new team is actually it's an interesting team because it's clearly um, yeah sort of uh, those people are all, are all very close allies uh, of him. His his, his like. Uh, yeah, of him, so to say, and um, his team has to deliver. To deliver, Christian Zeving in the past had a legacy of really um, being very good at implementing. So we have to give him the benefit of the doubt, of course. Whether the market is giving him that, we it, this is not very clear. But they clearly have to communicate now a lot more about how they want to do things and what the next steps are, because for now we don't know that yet. But that's back to you.
Annette, thank you very much for that. Uh, now, you've touched on a number of the big points, but many of the, the major investment banks have been raking through the fine print. And the reaction, optimistic, ambitious, radical. These are just some of the reactions to Deutsche Bank's major overhaul. Now, most analysts have said the measures were larger than expected, but questions remain over execution, as Annette has highlighted, and future revenue growth. Now, when it comes to that execution, some of the banks in particular are looking at the, the size of the cost cutting. That's got to come out of Deutsche bank's own purse. So the 7.4 billion euros is seen as quite punchy, very high number to try and achieve, even though it's spread out over four years, all this without a capital raising. So it's uh, got a big ambition to try and achieve those cost cuts. I think the other big point that was raised was around strategy, because you've got all this um, pivot that's taking place, but capital is going to be an issue. And if capital is an issue, the regulators are going to be pouring all over the bank, yeah. which means it may constrain the ability to go after the fast growth parts of the business, which is exactly what the uh, uh, and if you're an investor, why would you go for a lower capitalised bank rather than one that is well capitalised? Another question. Now, look, uh, Spria on .com, brilliant article, fantastic. All these analyst comments she's worked very hard to get. But I've got another little line for you on this one as well. These banks here, yeah, that's the analysts who we asked. Their management teams, I'm sorry, but this is the truth, will be cock-a-hoop about this because the fact is, this is what the analysts are saying, what happens with Deutsche. The management teams at Goldman, City, JP, uh, Barclays, UBS will be saying, do you know what? That's one less competitor out there in the market. So we know that there are two very different reactions, one from the analysts and two from the actual people running the rival operations uh, compared with Deutsche. And the point is as well, of course, they were already beating them. Under any measure you look on year to date, Deutsche were falling fast on some of these measures. For instance, year-to-date, their fees were down 20.7%, according to the FT, where the average was down 13.4%. So they were losing ground anyway in M&A, in advisory, in all kinds of ways. Uh, Karen, I just want to add one thing. I went to a, a plumbing shop yesterday uh, to look at... Um, Bathrooms. I was there with okay. a family member looking at bathrooms. And I said to them, I said, you must be really happy that Barstore.com has gone into some form of administration. Terrible news for Barstore, terrible news for their employees as well. But as a rival still there, you must be quite pleased. He said, yeah, but the problem is we're still being killed. We're still being killed by the internet. So let me just remind Deutsche, and I'm sorry to say this, but your brand new spanking great big brand new strategy, which James von Moltke, great interview with Annette yesterday, was talking about servicing German clients, servicing the German retail, servicing the German corporate. Let me just remind you of one very simple fact, and I'll give you a comparison here. In Great Britain, there are approximately 300 banks and 45 building societies, yeah? So about 345. What do you think the number is in Germany? Yeah, it's about 1,800. It's about 1,800 banks out there. 200 private banks, 400 publicly owned banks, and 1,100 member-owned credit unions as well. That is a hell of a lot of competition for Deutsche Bank in one of the most overbanked countries in the world. Yeah, smaller is meant to mean more nimble, more dynamic. So we'll see whether that can be achieved by Deutsche Bank. But one of the other points that was raised too, I think it was in the Goldman Sachs report. And don't forget, when you bring up Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank was meant to be the Goldman Sachs of Europe, real challenger to the big Wall Street banker. What they expected was a downsizing of the equity sales trading business, not a wholesale exit from many geographies, which takes you back to the financial crisis. If you think about it, a number of different jurisdictions were shut down, different countries lost 
lost sort of key parts of uh, business from whether it was a US or a European bank. But a wholesale closure of a business is quite a different thing. So for Deutsche Bank to take itself out of the game in one area right across the world is quite a significant change. And just on that point as well, and I'm sorry, I think Deutsche Bank has got some amazing people working for it still. In fact, we're going to speak to one a little bit later on as well. But the point is, if you are offering partial service or full service, if you're, for instance, if you are advisory Deutsche now and you're going to say, I'm going to take you to market, I'm going to run this book for you, I'm going to be your advisor on this as well, but you can't offer a secondary equities trading operation thereafter. That, that's quite a hole in your, in your proposition, your USP, or when you're selling to these corporates saying, I will take you through the various yeah, stages the of funding. supermarket model, though, and I wonder whether that is dead. I mean, the, the bank assurance where you could have a one-stop shop for everything you wanted to do is sort of dead post-financial crisis. Bank assurance was a very interesting model, which they keep trying to reprise it and get the dust back off it, but it was a complete howler for so many companies. So does it make companies. sense to be only in some parts of the business? Well, can I, can I just make one point? Have a look at the price to book of JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, which offer a one-stop shop, and then compare it to Deutsche Bank's price to book as well. Makes sense for them. Jurisdiction comes into it, though. If you want to have a read on what the analysts are saying, don't forget to check out this article around Deutsche Bank and its restructuring plan. You can go to cnbc.com. Well worth a read. Yeah, good work, Spria. OK, coming up on the show, Italy looks to take advantage of improved investor sentiment with further bond sales. More when we come back. And if you just can't get enough of Sporkbox, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast head to cnbc.com apple podcast spotify or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode for our listeners out there stick around for some more a cnbc signature event east tech west cnbc's exclusive invitation only retreat returns to mansha guangzhou china in 2019 we explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5g join the world's most prolific investors inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation visit easttechwest.com for an application to attend Greek 10-year bond yields hit an all-time low on Monday, uh, 2.014, the level we saw on the boards, as New Democracy Party claimed a majority in the country's elections. Kyriakos Mitsotakis was sworn in as Prime Minister on a pledge to boost economic growth in Athens. Mitsotakis has also promised to seek new terms with the country's creditors. The suggestion was rejected in Brussels yesterday. Uh, the Italian government is looking to take advantage of low yields after it hired four investment banks to sell more of its existing 50-year bonds. Uh, Italy's Treasury will also sell three- and seven-year bonds this week. It comes after Rome avoided punishment from the EU over its budget deficit. Willem joins us live from Brussels. Willem. Thanks, Steve. I got an email in my inbox yesterday afternoon from the Italian Finance Ministry saying they would be looking to try and flog off some of their long-term debt to new investors because, of course, they want to try and lock in some of these lower 
borrowing costs. And of course, that's because one of their biggest challenges when it comes to the relationship between Rome and Brussels is the size, not only of their annual deficit to uh, ratio, but also the size of the debt to GDP ratio. That is still way up there around 130%. It's been a big concern. And although they have now twice in seven months avoided this excessive deficit procedure or EDP, very narrowly, I might add, there are still huge concerns about what will happen come October when they release the numbers for their 2020 budget. And that's something that, of course, Giovanni Tria, at the heart of all this, the Italian finance minister, is very well aware of. Here were his comments on what they're trying to do into the second half of this year as he arrived for meetings with his counterparts here yesterday. In general, there's a need to reach some structural adjustments, which is more or less what we've done this year. Of course, we'll have to continue on this path. What's important remains the stabilisation of the debt-to-GDP ratio, and we'll see how the economy does in the second semester, and then we'll make final decisions. And although the European Commission has made allowances and said, you know what, Italy has brought things back in line with where we'd like to see them over the last week or so, they're not being entirely optimistic about what will happen next year. There's still a huge divergence between Brussels' forecasts and those coming out of Rome. And that was explained by Pierre Moscovici, the Commissioner for Economic and Financial Affairs, as he arrived at that same meeting here yesterday. We um, have planned, uh, forecasted a deficit at 3.5% next year. Of course, this would not fit. This would not be acceptable. This would lead to a public debt of over 145%. The Italian government said that they will stick to what they sent us. It was in April, 2.1%. Uh, well, it's up to them to define the measures that go there. Um, increasing, and it, it, of course, includes uh, tax measures. We don't have to give the details of what they should do. But what is clear is that they have committed to some global figures and that they must stick to it. What the Italians managed to do over the last couple of weeks was persuade the European Commission that not only were the changes they like to make midway through the year something that would allow them to stick below the potential targets for the deficit for this year, but also that they would make changes for next year. But there's been absolutely no detail about what those changes will be. We have some tax changes coming into the system on that side of uh, the, the continent, of course. Rome have talked about that in the past, but whether they'll actually make those changes and what they'll do to the numbers still remains to be seen, guys. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.